you're new to our church, by the way, we've been in a series called Chapter 2. So many of our lives, Chapter 1 is dominated by heartache or pain or sorrow or even just self-centeredness or some sort of sin. And yet Jesus comes in this situation. He steps into our scenario. He changes everything and we enter into Chapter 2 of our lives that's filled with hope and filled with purpose and filled with life and filled with promise. And that's kind of the premise of this series. And so we're going to continue that series this morning. In high school, I had a friend named London. We, we did track and field together. He specialized in the 200-meter dash. I specialized in the 400-meter dash. And he was one of those, like, naturally gifted people. Like, all he had to do to win races was show up. And I was so annoyed by that because that wasn't my case. That wasn't my story. I had to work my butt off. I'd stay after practice. I'd put in extra mileage. I'd run extra sprints. I'd lift extra weights. And somehow, I'm just being honest, he would still beat me. And I'd be so discouraged and so frustrated about it. You ever feel like you're doing everything right and life is still going in the wrong direction? You ever feel like you're trying so hard, but all of your efforts are either being overlooked or they just don't really matter? They're not producing anything, any benefit? You ever feel like someone less deserving, less talented, less hardworking is actually somehow ahead of you? Do you ever think to yourself, maybe I should just care a little less Maybe I should just try a little less. I think a lot of people feel that way. And whether it's in a work context, whether it's in a relational or a marital context, maybe it's even in a spiritual context. In the scriptures, there's this man named Asaph who actually struggled with these exact thoughts. He lived in the time of, of King David in, in Israel, and little is actually said about him, but there are several nuanced references to him throughout scripture. So here's what we gather. The first thing we learned about Asaph was that he was a musician. In fact, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, beginning in verse 4, it says that King David appointed the following Levites to lead the people in worship before the ark of the Lord, before the presence of the Lord, to invoke his blessings, to give thanks, to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And Asaph, the leader of this group, sounded the cymbals. So comparatively to our day and age, Asaph was essentially a worship pastor. He would lead the people of Israel into the presence of God. And the reference he sounded the symbol implies that he was a heck of a drummer, which is kind of cool too. The other thing we realize is that in the Psalms, 12 Psalms are actually attributed to him. So he was actually a songwriter as well. He was a musician. But he wasn't just a musician. We also know that he was a theologian. In fact, Scripture says that Asaph was a Levite. Levite was one of the tribes of Israel. It was the tribe actually entrusted with leading and caring for God's house. So in other words, Levites were ministers. They were priests. And certainly because of this, Asaph would have been an expert in the law of Moses. And if you're new to church, the law of Moses is, is really our, is the first five books in our Christian Bibles, but Asaph would have been an expert in the law. It's no surprise then that all the Psalms that Asaph writes are so filled with Israel's history and references to God's promises to Israel. He knew his theology. He knew God's word. He was a musician. He was a theologian. The other thing is, he was a prophet. In 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 30, Asaph is actually referred to as a seer, which is an Old Testament title for a prophet, somebody who literally saw the world differently, who heard God's voice, who spoke as a mouthpiece for God. It's pretty incredible. So Asaph didn't just know God's word. He actually knew God himself. And the way that he talked, the way that he led, the way that he wrote songs, the way that he lived his life actually proved that. And the other thing that we find out about Asaph is that he was actually revered in Israel. He was looked up to. He was adored. In the book of Ezra, there's a group of musicians that are actually referred to as the sons of Asaph. What's incredible about this reference is that the book of Ezra was actually written 500 years after Asaph's life and death which speaks of his incredible legacy in Israel. 
Even 500 years after his life and death, people wanted to emulate him, to be like him, to be attached to him, even if it was just by name. And yet the other thing that we learn about Asaph in the scriptures is that he has this incredible chapter two moment in his life. And luckily, he writes all about it in Psalm 73. Psalm 73, his most famous psalm. I actually want us to read it together. So for the next few moments, we're going to read Psalm 73. Beginning in verse 1, it says this, the words of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace, and they clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut throughout the earth. And so people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what is happening? Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task it is. Then... I went into your sanctuary, O oh God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. And when you arise, O oh Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. And then I realized that I was bitter. My heart was bitter. I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you, yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things that you do. It's the word of the Lord. I want us to travel through this beautiful song this morning, because I really believe that there are three things that we can learn from Asaph to help us enter into the chapter two moment in our lives and become everything that God has created us to be. Here are the three things. The first thing we need to do, we need to wrestle with God, we need to hang out with God, and we need to submit to God. We need to wrestle with God, hang out with God, submit to God. Let's start with the first. We need to wrestle with God, wrestle with God. You ever feel like your theology and your reality just aren't lining up? Like, maybe you've prayed one of the following. Like, God, I know that you say that you're my peace, but I feel so anxious and miserable right now. God, I know that you say that you're my companion, but you feel so far away. God, I know that you say that you're my protector, but I'm just hurting so badly inside. God, I know that you say that you're for me, but it kind of feels like you're against me right now in this particular situation. God, I know that you say that you're my provider, but I don't even know how I'm going to pay the bills this month. Have you ever looked at your life and noticed a disconnect between your theology and your reality, between what you believe and how it actually plays out in your life? You see, this is what Asaph is actually dealing with. Right away, we see him caught in this tension of sorts. Truly, God is good, he declares, but, but as for me, I'm falling apart. As for me, I'm losing my mind. 
Asaph knows God's word. Remember, he's a theologian, but he's having a difficult time translating and connecting his theology and his reality. And so he wrestles with God. I taught a new believers class at, the, at my former church. It was designed to help people understand how to follow Jesus, how to read scripture, how to get connected to the church. And before the class began, this young woman came up to me and she said, I, I hope it's okay that I'm here. I don't believe in God, but I want to. And I just kind of paused for a second because what a, what a peculiar phrase, how great. I don't believe in God, but I want to. And then she kind of expounded on it. She explained, she said, I just have so many questions that I need answered before I can actually say that I'm a Christian in good conscience. And so I told her that I was so happy she was there. I tried to affirm her honesty, her conviction, actually know what she was getting herself into. Well, after the class finished, she came up to me and she said, hey, I'm so sorry, I still have so many questions. Can we, like, can we meet? Can we talk? And so she came into the church offices later that week, and I kind of anticipated and expected her to have maybe two or three of the big questions. And she came into my office, put down this piece of paper that had 27 questions on it. 27. And check this out. They were all written in order of importance to her. And I remember just like getting so nervous inside when I saw that. I gulped. I was like, all right, God, here we go. Help me out, you know? And some of her questions, they were philosophical. Some were political. Oh, help me, Jesus. Some of them were this fusion of science and faith. Most of her questions actually addressed really God's intentions for humankind. And so after about an hour, we had traveled through most of her questions, and I looked at her. I was like, hey, is this making sense? And she looks at me. She goes, kind of. <laughs> Sweet. It's working. Okay. And after the hour, I just, I, I thanked her for asking tough questions. I thanked her for actually having the courage to wrestle with God and actually ask uh, questions and, and work through her doubts. And I didn't try to pressure her into starting a relationship with Jesus in the moment. I gotta be real. I didn't even pray with her because I knew that it, at the stage she was at, it would just make her feel awkward. And so I just thanked her and she, she went on her way. Well, three weeks later, she finds me at church after one of our services and she's just ecstatic. You could see just pure joy on her face. And she goes, Caleb, I did it. I gave my life to Jesus today. And I just, oh man, we celebrated. It was just, it was incredible. It was such an awesome, epic moment that I'll never forget. You see, in my experience, many people who say that they don't believe in God want to believe in God, but there are doubts in the way. There are doubts in the way. The famous physicist Stephen Hawking claimed that the universe is completely determined by the laws of physics. And many people acknowledge this as fact, but I just want us to pause for a, for a second this morning and consider the implications of such a belief. You see, the first thing that that belief implies is that humanity does not have a definitive purpose. Our existence has no meaning, no significance, no intention. We live, we die, and when we die, we, we simply cease to exist. Nothing really matters. The second thing it implies is that there's no such thing as free will. Free will is just an illusion. In fact, every emotion, every behavior, every response, they're, they're actually just chemical responses in the brain, which, in, which includes love, by the way. So the love that you feel for your spouse or your significant other, the love that you feel for your kids or your friends, the love that you feel for anything in life is a mere chemical response. It's an illusion. And the third thing it implies is that the universe is entirely material and that nothing is spiritual. Nietzsche once quipped, is man merely a mistake of God's or is God merely a mistake of man's? He was implying the latter, of course, because he believed that religion was invented by us to help us cope with our sad and meaningless existence. You depressed yet? <laughs> See, I don't know a lot of people that actually want to believe that. 
I think people would much rather believe the message that Jesus Christ communicates, that the universe was created with intention and purpose, that we humans have incredible and intrinsic meaning and value in our lives, that we have free will to create our own futures and to love, that there is real hope and comfort and purpose even in the midst of suffering. And yet what prevents so many people from actually believing these things is this thing called doubt. Doubt. And the problem is this, is that so many Christians don't have permission and they don't give permission to actually wrestle with God by working through our doubts. You see, I've heard people talk about doubt like it's a weakness, like it's compromise, like it's an illness, like it's sin. But I'd like to propose something quite different this morning. Doubt is not a sign of weakness. It is an opportunity for growth. Doubt is not a sign of weakness in our faith. It's an opportunity of growth. You see, two things actually happen when we wrestle with God by working through our doubts. The first thing is that our faith is personalized. It actually becomes our own. It's no longer because of our parents, our upbringing, our cultural influences, somebody else's opinion. We actually believe it. We have come to conclude that Jesus is the reality of our lives. Our faith is personalized. But the second thing that happens is that our faith is solidified. You see, if we have never had the courage to wrestle with God, to ask difficult questions, to actually work through our doubts, then I'll just be real. When tragedy, when heartache, when disappointment disrupt our lives, our faith will inevitably crumble. Why? Because it is by wrestling with God that our faith is solidified. It is by wrestling with God that our faith is fortified, that our faith is personalized. In the scriptures, there's this story about a man named Thomas. It's quite unfortunate that that's actually how um, history remembers him as doubting Thomas. But, but for whatever reason, uh, Jesus appeared to his disciples shortly after rising from the dead, and Thomas wasn't there. And this is where we pick up the story in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. It says this, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them, unless I place the, my hand into the wound in his side. Well, eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. And put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord, my God, Thomas exclaimed. I've always been astounded by Jesus' response in this story. You notice that he doesn't shame Thomas. He doesn't reprimand Thomas. He isn't even disappointed in Thomas. What does Jesus do? Jesus actually entertains Thomas's doubts. Jesus actually helps Thomas understand who he is. Jesus actually gives Thomas reason to believe in who he is. Jesus reveals himself to Thomas in the most profound and powerful way. And as a result, Thomas makes this declaration. He says, my Lord, my God. It was one of the first declarations of Jesus' divinity in all of church history. Man, doubt ultimately benefited Thomas's faith. His faith was personalized. It was solidified because he had the courage to actually wrestle with God and work through his doubt. And what's incredible is that church history actually confirms this. Thomas was eventually speared to death in India for preaching the message of Jesus. That's how much he believed in it. You know, the thing about doubt is that it comes in all shapes and sizes. Many people have intellectual doubts regarding science or the validity of Scripture. Most people doubts that I've learned come from experiences of suffering, or heartache, or disappointment. And what we find in Asaph's story is that his doubts, they're nuanced. They, they, they come from this thing called disappointment. Remember what he says in verse 13? He says, man, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. 
Every morning brings me pain. I, uh, I really enjoy fashion. There's really no other way to just say it. I'm just going to get it out there. It's very fun to me. Uh, Pastor Tyler has made a few comments on the stage about it, and uh, so I'm just going to get it out there. So last summer, I really had my eyes set on a Burberry coat. Don't judge me. This is church, people, okay? But I, I really wanted a Burberry coat, and I didn't want to pay the full money for it because those things are a pretty penny. And so I, for weeks, was on the internet just trying to find, okay, even just like a slightly used version of a Burberry coat that would still look really cool, be kind of like tailor-fit to my body, make me look pretty dope, but... I was like, okay, how do I find this thing, you know? I finally found it after weeks of searching, and I was so excited. It was at a way discounted price, so I bought it. I waited anxiously at the door for it to come. It finally arrived. I was so pumped. I opened it up. I was like, it's Burberry, and then I put it on, and I realized that there was this thing called the Burberry Lawn Trench Coat, and I wasn't aware of what that was. I put it on. It literally went past my feet. It was like dragging on the floor. It looked like a cape, for crying out loud. And, and it, could, like, it was so large, it could, I could wrap myself like, around it like 40 times. I'm looking at it, I'm like, Burberry Coat, like, this thing's a joke. You know? I was devastated. I was so, so disappointed. You know I've learned? So many of our disappointments come from desiring the wrong things. So many of our disappointments come from desiring the wrong things. Listen to Asaph's verbiage in this psalm. Verse 3, he says, I envied the proud when I saw them prosper. Verse 4, they live such painless lives. Verse 5, they don't have troubles like everyone else. Verse 7, these fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. What is Asaph desiring? Prosperity, ease, comfort. Freedom from struggle, freedom from hard work, more than this or that person has. Listen, we were never intended to live for those things. I'll be real. If you have them, it's great. Enjoy them. Be generous with them. But we were never intended to give our lives to them. We were never intended to live for them. You see, Asaph's chapter 1 was dominated by desiring the wrong things. But then he turns a chapter, he turns this corner into chapter two of his life, and he does so by my second point. We wrestle with God, and then we hang out with God. We hang out with God. Everything begins to change for Asaph, starting in verse 15. He has this grand realization. He says, if I had really spoken this way, I would have been a traitor to your people. If I just can be blunt this morning, some of us need to change the way that we talk. We need to change the way we talk. First, we need to change the way we talk to others. You see, Asaph here recognizes that he's in a place of leadership. And if he vocalizes all of his doubts in a public setting, that what it's going to do is it's actually going to confuse the very people that God's entrusted him to lead. You need to hear me on this. People are watching you. Whether you realize it or not, if people know that you love God, I guarantee somebody is watching you. They're watching how you conduct yourself in stressful situations. They're watching how you handle pain and heartache and disappointment in your life. They're watching how you make decisions, how you love your family, how well you interact with your coworkers, and what is the message that is being communicated? What is the message that they are receiving? You see, Asaph realizes that his life's goal is actually to remove the obstacles that can hold people back from encountering God's love, not add to those obstacles. That his life's goal is actually to liberate people, not confuse people. Some of us need to change the way we talk to others, and to God. Some of us just need to change the way we talk to God. I had this realization this last week as I was hanging out with the Lord. I realized that the majority of my prayers were becoming very passive. And this is me being a little transparent. I've been praying a lot of prayers like, God, I'm just so tired. God, I just feel so weak. God, I'm just struggling with this and with that. 
Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with praying these prayers. Let me just get that out there. In fact, the Psalms are filled with them. But here's what I've learned, is that we cannot live in that mentality even in our prayer life. Even in our prayer life. If those are the only types of prayers that we ever pray, we will begin to see our faith, hope, and love diminish very slowly. Some of us need to change the way that we pray. By beginning to pray prayers like this, God, expand my capacity. Expand my capacity to love because this person is really annoying me right now. God, expand my capacity to trust because I'm beginning to lose faith. God, expand my capacity to work hard because I'm just so overwhelmed right now. God, expand my capacity. Give me greater faith, greater strength, greater power, greater love, greater hope. Rather than praying passive prayers, we, get, we begin to pray active prayers. You see, the timing in the psalm is so interesting to me. Asaph changes the way he talks in verse 15, and breakthrough comes in verse 17. He says this. He says, so I tried to understand. I tried to get it. I tried to wrap my head around it. But what a difficult task that is. Then I went into your sanctuary, oh God. Then I went into your presence. Then I hung out with the Lord, and I finally understood. In my opinion... Joshua chapter 1 is one of the most profound chapters in Scripture. I just love it. And if you have never read Joshua chapter 1, I encourage you, when you get home or later this week or later tonight even, read through Joshua 1. But Joshua 1 is this epic moment where Moses, Israel's greatest leader, has just passed away. He's just died, and the baton has been handed off to, to Joshua. And it's one of the most quotable uh, chapters in Scripture where it's, the Lord is literally telling Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, I will be with you wherever you go. Nobody will be able to stand up against you. I mean, it's just this epic moment. All of the nation of Israel is supporting Joshua in that moment. And we know from Scripture that he, be, he, he goes on to become one of the greatest leaders who had ever lived. And yet what's so incredible about the story is that Joshua's story doesn't begin in Joshua chapter 1. A lot of people think that but it doesn't. In fact, we see glimpses of Joshua throughout the books of Exodus, throughout the books of Numbers. And check out this one reference. I think it's so profound. Exodus 33, verse 11. This is before Joshua 1. This is before Joshua ever became the greatest leader in Israel's history. This is what is said about him. Exodus 33, 11. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, like two people talking to each other. And then Moses would come back to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, none son, wouldn't leave the tent. He wouldn't leave the tent. You see, Joshua would accompany Moses into the presence of God. God would speak to Moses in profound ways. And then Moses would go home. He'd have some dinner. He'd watch some Hulu. He'd unwind. But Joshua would stay in the presence of God. He would linger in the presence of God. He just stayed there. It's no wonder why God used him to lead the entire nation of Israel, a group of two million people, into the promised land. I want you to hear me. Everyone wants a Joshua 1 story, but few are willing to have the Exodus 33 experience. Everyone wants a Joshua 1 story. Everyone wants to do something significant with their lives. Everyone wants to be used by God in profound ways, but few people are actually willing to put in the time and the hard work and the effort and the tears and the prayers to actually know God, to hear his voice, to be transformed by God from the inside out. It was hanging out with God that prepared Joshua to lead Israel into the promised land. It was hanging out with God that led Asaph to experience breakthrough in his life. And it is hanging out with God that will move you into chapter 2 of your life, chapter 2 of your story. When I was 6 years old, my mom left my dad, and it was extremely messy. My dad was a pastor, so 
our entire family just exploded overnight, and it was so difficult. And it didn't get easier as I grew up. It actually just got harder and harder. As I grew older, my mom's house became more and more toxic. And my parents had split custody, though, so I was kind of stuck doing the, you know, every other night thing. And so I'd go over to my mom's house, and I remember there were times where I would just, I'd be in the driveway, and I'd be looking at my dad, and I'd just be bawling my face off, like, Dad, I don't want to do this. I can't go over there again. It, it, it hurts too much. Like, please, I, I don't want to go there. And I just got to pause the story real quickly to say I have a great relationship with my mom now, which is so cool. The Lord actually, he does. He, he restores. He redeems. He heals broken things. And so I just want to take a moment to celebrate that. But in that moment, man, I was feeling it. It was so hard. And yet I'd go to my dad's house, and I'd see my dad, and every single morning he'd wake up, and he'd go to the same chair in our living room, and he'd open up his Bible, and he'd just read. Like, he'd read for an hour, and just read, and then after, uh, you know, reading scripture, he'd come and hang out with us, we'd have fun. He, he, he drew such strength from being with God, such, such uh, encouragement, such hope, such joy, there was just something about it. And so I made that correlation, even as an eight-year-old kid, and I went up to my dad, and I said, Dad, would you help me learn how to read the Bible? And so he began to teach me how to read the Bible. We read for a couple of weeks together. And then all of a sudden, I went to the Christian bookstore and bought a Bible, uh, eight years old. And I, I, every time I'd go over to my mom's house, I'd have it in my hands. And I'd go over there, and everything was just so hard and so scary and so dark. And I'd go to the backyard, and there was this one rock in the backyard. I still remember exactly where it was. It was shaped like a lounge chair, which was pretty cool for me. And so I'd just sit there, and I'd sit there for hours, and I'd just read the Bible. I'd just read i got to be real. I had no idea what I was reading. I was eight. Some of this was so confusing, you know. But here's, here's the thing. God became real to me in those moments. It was in the darkest moments, the loneliest moments, the hardest moments, the scariest moments that God became real to me. I began to hear his voice. He began to speak to me. It was in God's presence, just like it was for Asaph, that God told me that I was loved, that he had a plan for my life, that he wanted to use me to go change the world. I mean, it was in those moments, in the presence of God, that God became real to me. You see, it's hanging out with God, not just once in our lives, not just when things go poorly. It's, it's having the daily routine, the daily rhythm of, okay, I'm going to spend time with the Lord. And if you've never done that before, by the way, we have some 40-day journals right next to those doors on the way out. Swoop one up. Just start. It's just one chapter a day. Just start reading scripture. Start hanging out with God. Your life will never be the same. We wrestle with God. We hang out with God. And then the third thing, we submit to God. We submit to God. I have an important confession to make. I can't stand backseat drivers. They just annoy me so much. Anyone with me? Like, oh, man, like, they're the people, they're the people that tell you to brake when the car in front of you is still like a half a mile away. They're the people that, you know, tell you to slow down. I'm like, I'm in the fast lane, like, chill, you know. The people that tell you to put down your phone when the song needs to be changed. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, everyone. I saw it in your faces, like, oh, he touches his phone while he drives? No, never, okay? Uh, the, the worst, though, the worst types are the passive-aggressive backseat drivers. You know what I'm saying? Like, the ones that never actually vocalize, like, whoa, dude, slow down, you know? But the ones that show you in their body language, like, they're literally stomping the floor with their foot, like, oh, my gosh, he's going so fast right now. Or the, they're gripping the handlebars that nobody ever uses, you know? They're like, ah! Those are the worst, man. They just drive me nuts, okay? But a couple weeks ago, I, I, I realized that, man, I am the worst backseat driver. I really am. I just got to get it out there. It's, it's so bad. And, and it's really not on the 680, and it's really not on the 24. It's not on Tree Boulevard or Camino Tassajara. Man, it's in my relationship with God. I'm the worst backseat driver to God of all time. 
You see, I told him a long time ago that he could lead my life, that he could navigate me, that, that, that he was the Lord of my life, not me. And yet all the time I say things like, God, don't, don't turn there. Don't, whoa, whoa, why are you turning there? Like, look at the Apple Maps. It says this way. My dream's this way. Why are we going there? Or I see things like, God, like, life is just, it's too fast. It's just too much. Can we just slow down just a little bit? And then the minute things slow down, I'm like, God, like, why is everything so slow and boring? Like, let's speed this thing up, you know? Like, I want to get to my dreams. I mean, I'm just the worst all the time. God, where are we going? God, why are we doing this? God, slow down, speed up. I'm the worst backseat driver. And Asaph realizes in verse 21 that he's doing just that to God, too. Listen to what he says. I realized that my heart was bitter. I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Wow. It's so graphic. He's basically saying like, God, I realized how annoying I was. I'm so sorry. But then the entire mood of the psalm changes. Why? Because Asaph submits his life all over again to God. Because he submits his life all over again to God. And all of a sudden, breakthrough is in full swing. When you get to verse 23, he's having realization after realization. Bombs are being dropped left and right. He says this, yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. My great-grandpa was a pretty epic person, pretty epic man. He uh, served in World War II. He loved Jesus with all of his heart. He was married to his wife before she passed away for over 55 years. Just incredible. And he really liked puzzles. That was like his thing. Like, and not just like little like 10-piece puzzles, like extremely complicated puzzles. And so I remember going over to his house one day. I was young. And there was this particular puzzle I'll never forget. You know how like puzzles have like kind of the, the picture, the goal on the box. Like here's, here's what it's supposed to look like. And this one was like this work of abstract art. So it was, it was beautiful, but it was just so complicated and so difficult. And I remember my great grandpa calling out to me and saying, hey, Caleb, come here, help me out. I didn't know what I was doing. So I just picked up a random piece. And I remember holding it up and feeling so just kind of like taken back by it. It, it, it wasn't your typical puzzle piece shape. It didn't seem like it could fit anywhere. You know how like, I mean, some, some puzzle pieces, it's like, oh, I get how this fits. This makes sense in the grand scheme of things. But I just remember holding this up and being like, this must be a mistake. And what I learned from my great grandpa that day was that that was actually the most important piece. It was the very piece that the entire rest of the puzzle was actually built upon. The piece that made everything else come together perfectly. It's incredible. I, I remember this story the other day as I thought about my own life. And I, I got super emotional first service, so I'm going to do my best to just kind of try to, try to be composed. But about two months ago, Pastor Tyler announced to all of you, to the church, that my wife of four years filed for divorce. I never thought that that would be my story. I never wanted it to be my story. I, I tried to do everything possible to make sure it wouldn't be my story. And countless times I've looked at my life like I've looked at that puzzle piece and I've looked up at God going, God, what are you doing? This, this doesn't fit. It doesn't fit in the story. It doesn't fit in the masterpiece. You're ruining it. You're ruining the masterpiece. What are you doing? And yet what's so incredible is I'm learning so much, by the way. And the first thing is if, if you're in a season, if you're in a chapter of your life that's just taking the wind out of you, you need to know this. Jesus is everything he's ever promised us that he would be. Man, I've, 
I've experienced that time and time and time again. He's everything he promised us he would be. He is our rock. He is our hope. He will get us through the darkest times, through the loneliest times, through the most painful times. But we have to submit to him. But here's the reality. I'm not responsible for making every piece to the puzzle come together. That's God's job. I'm responsible for this piece. The piece that I'm holding. The moment that is before me. And sometimes life gives us this beautiful piece that's just really easy. It makes sense. I'm like, oh, okay, I get how this is coming together. This is beautiful. And then other times life gives us this piece where I'm like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to use this. I don't want this to, to be my reality. And yet if we trust the Lord, and if we submit to him, if we surrender, he's going to make this masterpiece that we can never even comprehend on our I've been falling back on so many scriptures, I don't even know where to start, but I'll start with Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It says, I believe that the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. And 2 Corinthians 4, 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. Man, that is my hope. That was Asaph's hope. That can be your hope. That God is leading you to a glorious destiny. Even when everything is dark. Even when nothing makes sense. The promise that we have in Jesus is that every effort will be rewarded. Every single heartache will be redeemed. Nothing will be wasted. I want to read one more scripture for us. Before we go back into a moment of worship. Romans chapter 8 verse 35. It says this. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Can I just pause there? Man, that's the question of our lives, isn't it? Then when we, we hold up this piece that just doesn't make sense, we go, God, do you, do you love me? Are you even with me right now? I'm so thankful this, the scriptures don't end there, though. It says, does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Verse 37, no, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that. In spite of all these things, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us. Man, because of his love, no matter what peace that life brings us, we know that we have victory. We know that we win. We know that the Lord will redeem it and lead us to a glorious destiny. You know what the most beautiful thing is about Psalm 73? Is that not only is it the, the journey that Asaph traveled, the journey that... I'm transparently telling you that I'm traveling and the journey that you will undoubtedly have to travel in one way or another. It's the journey that Jesus himself traveled. Man, when we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus wrestled with God. Jesus wrestled with God. Luke 22 says that he actually knelt down and prayed to the Father, Father, if there's any other way to do this, I'm down. If there's any possible way that you could take away this cup of suffering from me, I'm in. He wrestled with the Father. In fact, Luke 22 says that he wrestled so hard that, that there was actually blood that was dripping from his forehead like sweat. Wow. Jesus wrestled with God. And the other thing is Jesus hung out with God. Man, he prayed fervently. And not just once. It was the routine of his life. Have you ever noticed how many times in the Gospels it says that Jesus just literally, he escaped. He went to the mountain and he hung out with the Father. He just prayed all night long, all morning. He escaped. It was his routine. He hung out with God. And finally, Jesus submitted to God. Luke twenty two forty four. I don't want your will to be done. Or I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. Your will be done in my life. It was Jesus' submission that changed human history forever.
You see, we need to wrestle with God. We need to hang out with God. And we need to submit to God. And if we do those things, we can be assured that God is leading us to a glorious destiny. Would you pray with me this morning?